few years ago, a group of friends and myself went to Nepal to see a teacher there. And getting to Nepal was its own challenge. And once we got to Kathmandu, we uh, located a, a driver and drove to see the teacher, which was about an hour and a half out of town, up in the mountains. And it was a, a fairly uncomfortable ride. And when we got there, um, the teacher wasn't ready to receive us, so we waited. And as with everything in Asia, uh, there's no schedule. Uh, you just wait. So we waited <clears throat> a couple of hours, and then uh, at the end of the, or, or, or at some point, uh, we were told that we could come in. We went in, and uh, the teacher was there. He said, "Well, we said that we'd we'd come t to hear some teachings." And he said, "Well, I only teach one thing. I I just teach the Dharma." You know, I just repeat the same thing. Every time you come, I'm going to say the same thing. So what is it you want to know? <laughs> so, so we told him that we wanted to receive these, these certain teachings. He said, okay, well, um, why don't you come back in a couple of days and I'll give you the teaching. So back down the mountain and uh, hang out in Kathmandu coffee shops for a couple of days and then rented the car, and drove back up. And we got there, and uh, he wasn't ready to receive us. <laughs> and so we had to wait. So we, we all sat around for a couple of hours, uh, just kind of shooting the breeze, waiting for, I guess, until we were ready. And then at some point we said, okay, the, the, the Rinpoche can uh, see you now. So we went in, and he said, uh, what would you like to know? <laughs> so he asked him for this very specific teaching. And so he, he just started talking. And uh, his talk was apparently totally aimless. Just wandering around, talking for the first couple of hours. And he was just kind of rambling on and just kind of touching on personal stories and a little bit of dharma, and, and everybody was just listening with rapt attention. You know, very, uh, very good audience to speak to. And uh, after, in the third hour, he began to really hit the dharma, and by the fourth hour, he'd covered the topic we were there for. And uh, at the end of the four hours, um, we we paid our respects and thanked him and said, uh, "When could we come again?" And he said, "What do you want to come again for?" You've heard the teaching. That's it. You know, if you come again, I'm going to tell you the same thing. But we said, yeah, but we came all the way from America. We're going to be here for two weeks. Uh, we'd like to receive uh, additional teachings. And he said, well, in a couple of days you come back. Now you begin to get the drift, right? <laughs> well, this is the way it went for, you know, he said, okay, you can come four times. And we went four times. And all four times, he said the same thing. <laughs> and after every time, he said, Now you've heard the teachings, go practice. Now you've heard the teachings, go practice. Just practice. 
you know, like practice for a couple of years, then come back and we'll talk again. It was like that. And it was an, an interesting point in practice because I was ready to hear that kind of teaching where you get some instruction and you're sent off to practice for a few years. I haven't always been able to receive that kind of teaching. I, like many of you, very uh, ambitious in my uh, goal-seeking in my practice. So tonight I'm going to speak about the one thing that we speak about here, that is uh, mindfulness, awareness, attention, uh, cultivating presence of mind to be with the way things are uh, without reacting. Have you heard that before? Yeah, well, that's, that's the only game in town. Um, but I'm going to put in a little, a few stories and a few different perspectives, so maybe it'll sound a little bit different, but maybe not much. When we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about nothing other than this capacity of the mind to be aware. This bell makes noise, but it doesn't know the sound it makes. Trees produce fruit, but they have no idea of the taste of that fruit. Why? No mind. What we have, what we are aware of, what we are manifesting moment to moment, day in, day out, is the mind. Unfortunately, we have grown so used to it, so accustomed to it, it is so ever-present, we take it for granted as just nothing special. But it is extraordinary. We have this capacity to know, to be aware. Some of you have come in, 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 in today in interview just kind of um, just fascinated with the mind. What a trip! You know, isn't it? What, why does the mind behave or misbehave like it does? The oddest things come into the mind. Uninvited from nowhere and torture us or seduce us. And we think that's perfectly normal. <laughs> Where are we coming from? You know, and we think, 
And I'm sure you all think, as someone in interview today asked me, is, is the mind inside me, is that my mind? Is this my mind? You know, is your mind your mind? Or is it the mind? You know, like the big mind, we all got a piece of the, the mind. <laughs> I started this journey back a few decades ago, and I think it was really begun with taking drugs of one sort or another, where you kind of get the door opened uh, to another dimension or another perspective on this reality that we're living in, and you see, wow check this out, you know, and then the effects wear off, the door closes, and you're back to your ordinary life. At that time, I thought, well, the goal is keep taking those drugs. (laughs) (laughs) But as Ramdas so accurately put it, you got the message, hang up the phone. (laughs) Okay? The work is right here in this body, in this mind, clearing house. Because that's what we see, you know, when we get this first glimpse, whether it's drugs or some uh, spiritual experience, you get this opening to the mind. Un kind of filtered, kind of pure awareness, unidentified, unlimited, unbounded free. The task of the journey is to realize that, kind of on an ongoing, uh, everyday level, way. I was living in a commune in central Maine, recovering from 16 years of education or so, and was just hanging out there doing the things you did back then. And one woman in the commune picked up this book, Beginning to See, a little book of one-liners about mindfulness. In the back of the book was an address of a center in California, Still Point. So she wrote and asked about teachers and what, what it was all about. And we got a message back or a letter back from someone that said, oh, there's a retreat going on in Maine right now um, where this meditation practice is being taught. Well, neither, no one there, we didn't know what a retreat was. We didn't know what meditation was. We didn't know anything. Or I didn't. And I didn't know anybody who meditated. I didn't know anybody who was into spiritual anything. Or And Buddhism was the same thing as any other religion to me. And this other woman in the commune wrote and got the information and decided to go to two weeks of this, the first three-month retreat. And she told me about it, and I thought that I'd like to go too. But in my mind, we were going on a holiday. (laughs) You see, I... I thought it was two weeks, kind of like at a seaside resort. 
you know, where you're going to chill out and, you know, there's going to be some kind of entertainment. So, you know, we took our musical instruments and, you know, some books and knitting and reading and, you know, stuff that you do when you go, you know, you're on vacation, you're on holiday. and So we went to this, um, on the appointed day, we went to this place in, in Maine and it was an old Catholic monastery and we got there and this was the last two weeks of the first three-month course. They, they opened it up to new people again, the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. So we got there and there were about 60 or 70 people that had been there for two and a half months uh, w practicing. And they were pretty chilled out and they weren't, look <laughs> they weren't looking at anybody and they weren't talking to anybody. And we kind of walked in kind of fresh off the boat. <laughs> and uh, we saw all these people walking around wrapped up in blankets looking at the floor and creeping around. And we thought, oh my God, what did we get ourselves into? This is, this is worse than some cult. And uh, we're in this little hallway and on the left was the dining room, empty. And on the right were these double doors and there was a, a schedule posted on the Thing. And by this time, we'd seen a few people walking around, not talking. So we saw the schedule, you know, wake up at 4.30, sit and walk, have breakfast, sit and walk, sit and walk, have lunch, sit and walk, sit and walk, have tea, <laughs> sit, walk, 7.30, talk. <laughs> wow. We looked at each other and said, at least we get an hour a day to speak to each other. <laughs> Oops. You know, sit and walk, sit and walk, go to bed at 10 o'clock. And we said, oh, you can imagine. I mean, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I, I didn't know anything about a retreat. It was just like, not on my screen. But we, we were there. We got there. Somehow we showed up and we said, well, we're here. Let, let's do it. <laughs> Those two weeks was utter, torturous hell. <laughs> they were the worst two weeks of my life. <laughs> I sat way up back, I leaned against the piano, and I was in excruciating physical pain the whole time. I, there wasn't, I don't think, one minute of relief. <laughs> and of course, my mind wasn't comfortable either. <laughs> And I don't remember a thing, except when we got in the car after the end of the retreat. <laughs> it was like getting into the car, tripping. <laughs> wow, things are really different. Everything was the same, but everything seemed really different. And we went back to the commune. It was a couple hour drive away. Went back to the commune. Everybody was there. Everything was the same. And nothing was the same. Everything was different. It's like you, we couldn't fit back in. We just couldn't go back to the way things used to be. Because the mind was open. You, we had become aware of the mind, awareness even. It was a shock. A couple of weeks later, we moved out of the commune. We couldn't live there anymore. It was so profound in some way. It woke 
in myself. It woke something up which felt like I had always known. I'd always known this. I'd always believed it. And yet, I never had heard it or said it or practiced it or been it or done it. But it was the most right thing I'd ever kind of fallen into. You know how the Dharma sounds, even the first time you hear it sometimes, it is so right on. It's like, that's the way it is. Well, that's the way it was. After that first retreat, didn't practice, didn't read any books, didn't do any more retreats. Dropped off the screen, back to work, back to life as normal. Apparently, uh, nothing had changed. What is mindfulness? Because 25, 27 years ago, I did that first retreat. And now I'm doing this. What happened? Over those years, there was some process going on. And believe me, it was not an easy process. It's not a, a gradual process. It was tumultuous and torturous most of the way. And I say that because some of you are, are in that phase of your practice. It's really difficult. Awareness is, or mindfulness is, the key, really. It is the essential key to being not only awake, but alive. Without awareness, without that presence of mind, knowledge, we are walking, talking automatons. We're machines. We are completely entranced, enchanted by the monologue running in our mind. Mindfulness brings us out of that enchantment. And the enchantment is, and the monologue and the enchantment is nothing other than, you know, the family of origin cultural stuff, which we all have to grow, we all need to get in growing up in order to be able to function in life, be able to relate to people and, and function in life. But that's not what's really going on. And the practice of mindfulness or awareness training is to wake up to that. Not to deny it. Not to get rid of it. Not to somehow think that we can live without that monologue. Or that we can somehow turn it off and be free of it. That's not the goal. The goal is to become aware of it so that you're not <clears throat> enslaved by it blindly, so that we can begin to see where we're hooked, where we're identified, what's jerking us around, 
what's causing us to close down? What's causing us to be so willingly seduced by somebody else's dream or fantasy or... Awareness or mindfulness training is essential. It's the, it's the key to being free. To becoming and realizing what we are. And what is mindfulness? It's nothing other. It's, it's so simple. It's the power to observe the way things are. Now you've heard it all. Mindfulness is the power to observe the way things are. I didn't say mindfulness is the ability to make things be the way you want them to be. <laughs> it's just the ability to see things the way they are. It's the power to observe. And I think initially for me, in, in that, there was a certain, I want things to be a certain way, and that's all I could see. Or that was the measure or how I evaluated my practice. If things were going the way I wanted, mindfulness was good. <laughs> if things weren't going the way I wanted, you know, pain and frustration and wandering mind and things, my practice was bad. That's a mistaken view that I lived with for more than 10 years of retreats. Evaluating my practice based on whether I felt like I was in control. Someone came in to interview today talking about pain physical pain and their relationship to physical pain and how it had been going through some changes over the last few days and the understanding they had arrived at now was and it was really it was quite right on that Pain and awareness were sharing the same space. And when you let your awareness share the space with what's happening, space opens up. It's just infinite. You can be with anything. Pleasant, unpleasant. You're not trying to control it. You're not, it's not in a box. You're not trying to get rid of it. You're not trying to fix it. You're not even trying to explain it or understand it or you're just sharing the space. It's that totally I was gonna say receptive, but you're not even receiving it. It's like it's there and awareness is there. This is this is such a basic elemental piece of, of awareness training. Something's happening, breathing pain, a thought, an emotion, something's happening, there's awareness of it. Something's happening, there's awareness of it. 
This is happening in every moment. Something's happening. There's awareness of it. A difficulty comes when we don't like what we're sharing space with. (laughs) We don't like pain. We don't like unpleasant memories. We don't like anxiety about the future. We don't like the unknown. We don't like being out of control or not in control. We want to know what's going to happen. We want our past to be acceptable, tolerable, only the good parts. And awareness isn't like that. Awareness doesn't pick and choose, you know, only the pleasant, forget the unpleasant. Awareness is open to everything, equally, non-commenting, non-judging, non-picking and choosing. It's we, our, our, what is it, that picks and chooses that says, I'm afraid of this, I don't want to see that. I want this, give me more. Our preferences, maybe. Our habits. Our conditioning. That's what we get exposed to. That's what we see in the process of opening up, of waking up, is our conditioning that limits our awareness. So we see our preferences, we see our choices, we see our fears, we see our joys, we see our ambitions, we see our... It takes so much uh, tolerance, so much stamina to just endure ourselves. We're so petty. I mean, aren't we? I am. The the condition to me is so judgmental. of myself and others. It's so petty. It's so menini. It's just... It's tiring. And yet, it's all in there. All these boxes in the mind, these corridors that you can't go down because it's too uncomfortable. It's too unpleasant. Somebody said, don't go there. You know, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Mindfulness or awareness has the ability to touch experience. Touch as in intimacy. To really intimately touch the experience of this moment. To actually feel the breath. To actually feel pain. Or to feel loneliness. (coughs) Or anxiety. There's nothing else that feels that. There's no, there's no machine that's feeling that. There's no computer that's going to feel that. You know, it's not your clothes that feels that. It's your mind that feels that. And it's only the mind that feels that. There's nothing else that can feel that. You know, we say, oh, the eyes see, the ears hear. The nose smells, the tongue tastes. But they don't really do that. It's the mind that sees, it's the mind that smells, it's the mind that hears, it's the mind that tastes. 
These sense doors are only the avenue in to the mind. Without these senses, we wouldn't know we had a mind, considering the thoughts, another sense door, the mind, a sense door. One, one really helpful question to support the awakening or the opening of non-judgmental awareness is to ask yourself the question, what is this? What is this experience? And as much as possible to put aside judgment. After some years of practice in the state, in the States, years of retreats, I went to Burma. And I was doing my practice there. And this one state of mind kept coming up over and over again. And it was a habit, it was a mental habit that I'd never seen before, that I was totally identified with, totally blinded by, didn't, didn't know it. And every time it came up, I would feel not quite defeated, but almost in my efforts to practice. And the, the storyline went, I can't do this. And there was usually an explanation. I'm too old. I can't do this. I'm too stupid. I can't do this. I don't have enough energy. I can't do this. I did too many drugs. I can't do this. I didn't do enough drugs. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be consistent, you know. Just, you know. But, but when, when the story would come up, I can't do this, I would believe it. It would just... And then I would mope around and kind of feel bad about myself and bad about practice and, and kind of waver in my commitment and only half-heartedly sit and walk and... You know, until I got bored again. And then I'd say, oh, well, I'm here. I might as well do it again. And so I'd try again. And I would get going, and this, this voice would come up again. You know, when it got difficult, when, when things got, either my expectations weren't met or pain or whatever. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then at one point I said, what, what's, what's going on here? Why do I keep falling into this? Every time this comes up, I believe it. So I said, what is this experience? Well, the word I came up, and I, I don't really know if this is what it is or not, but the word I came up with, self-pity. Oh, poor me. I can't do this because X, Y, Z. Well, suddenly I had a new game. Every time, oh, poor me started singing its song, I said, oh yeah? Self-pity. I see you. Now I got your number. Every time. Now, <laughs> what, what prevents you from practicing other than the belief that you can't? Nothing. 
if you get a handle on, as, as I got a handle on at that time, the only thing that could stop practice was the belief, I can't do this. That was replaced by the belief or the practice of, I am doing this. It didn't have to, I didn't have to pump myself up with confidence or energy or determination or anything. It was just like, I saw it every time it came up. Awareness is so powerful. Once you get kind of, once you get kind of awoken to pieces of it, it's like it waves a flag every time it says, see me, see me, and you see it. And as soon as you see the monologue in your mind, you're no longer enchanted by the content of the thought. If you don't see the monologue in your mind, you are enchanted. The words go through your mind and you believe them. You don't have any choice because you haven't even seen them. They're unconscious. Now, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a piece of enchantment which is kind of romantic, you know? You kind of candlelight and soft music and it's so enchanting. Now, what, what is enchantment? Enchantment is being deluded. <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, you don't want bright lights here. You want candlelight because you don't want to see things the way they really are. You want to see things the way you want to see things. You're willing to be enchanted or entranced. Now, mindfulness uh, one of the results of mindfulness is tremendous disenchantment. Now, disenchantment feels, you know, when you get disenchanted with someone, we get disenchanted with something, you feel kind of disappointed, you kind of, you feel kind of let down. You feel kind of like backing off, and it's like, what a disappointment that was, right? But disenchantment is really disillusionment. You stop being under the spell, the, the delusory spell of your own mind, and you come out of that. And you know what? There is a feeling of letdown. It's like, all the dreams, all the fantasies, all the hopes, all the ambitions, all the pretensions, all of the explanations, rationalizations, and justifications collapse. And you're just left with, wow, naked reality. Well, be careful what you want, wish for. You might get it. You know, naked reality is pretty tough stuff. It's tough medicine. It's hard to live with disenchantment, with disillusionment, to see things as they are. But that's the, that's, that's the direction that mindfulness has taken us. And so there's this feeling, as a couple of people mentioned today in, in uh, interviews, that there's this kind of pervasive feeling of Uh, something like sadness or melancholy. It's just like, huh, wow. You know, when you're disillusioned, huh, wow. 
after I did my first retreat, a couple years after that, IMS was uh, bought and, and became a retreat center, and they sent out this um, notice that they needed people to come be on staff and work there. And as soon as I saw the notice, I decided to go, and I went. And when you're there on staff, you know, you're, you're, you're staffing and you're, you're doing your job, cooking or managing or maintenance or whatever you're doing. And the teachers are there and they come in and they do a retreat and stay for 10 days or two weeks and then they leave and another teacher comes in and does something. And you get to hang out with the teachers a lot, kind of behind the doors, you know, in the, in the, in the talking zone of the place. And, you know, when I went there, I mean, I'd only seen teachers up on this little pedestal up here, you know, like this, you know, and they're up there and they're always saying these wonderful things, you know, Dharma. And uh, so inspiring. You see them in an interview and they give you little pointers and it's really nice. And then you see them in the staff dining room. You know, and they're just ordinary people. They're just average people just like you. You know, they have, you know, bodies and minds and, you know, they gossip and, you know, they, they, they have their, you know, relationship problems and they worry about money and they, you know, they hate tinkering with their car and, you know, stuff like that. They're ordinary people. And it really, uh, it was very disillusioning. <laughs> I kind of thought, wow, somehow if you practice well, you kind of get beyond all that stuff. You don't get beyond it. It, it comes along with you. <laughs> you know. But you do get a different relationship to all that stuff. So I did um, a few years of practice in um, doing retreats. And then Upandita was invited to come to America and nobody had heard about him, you know, in 84. And he was invited to come to America and the way it was set up was there were going to be uh, 20 invited students to practice with him for three months. And it was going to be all teachers or, or teacher trainees. Well, <laughs> I was not a teacher, and I was nowhere near even being considered as a trainee. I just happened to be the manager of IMS. And I let them know that I wanted to do that retreat. So I finagled my way into this retreat. 20 teachers and me. <laughs> <laughs> And I told you Upandita knew me as Steve Armstrong and was always asking me, is your mind strong? Is your mind strong? I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And that retreat was a three-month retreat with Upandita, was worse than my first two-week retreat. <laughs> and now I'd been practicing for 10 years, and it was worse. It was just, it was horrible beyond belief. But I had a good relationship with Upandita. We laughed a lot together. But my practice was pretty painful, pretty unbearable. Upandita had thought that he was coming to teach teachers and people who were, had good practice and would be teachers. But at the end of my retreat, in my last interview, he said to me, he said, um, You should not teach.
He said, um, it would be better if you practice some more. He said, you can, you can share your experiences, but he said, <laughs> you really should not teach. <laughs> well, I had no, no, no pretensions or no aspirations. That was, that was not a shock to me. I laughed. I was, I was happy to be out of there. And uh, so that's the way that went. Those three months with Upandita was the, the end of ten months of uh, intensive practice that I had been doing uh, at the center there. And I thought that I was done practice. Not because I had finished the course, so to speak, but because I was so stuck or so uh, incapable, so incompetent, so unable to do anything but what I'd been doing. Now this was ten years of, you know what? I don't think I yet knew what mindfulness was after ten years. I, I heard the instructions. I heard Dalai Dharma talks. I did what they said, but I never caught fire. It never really caught fire in my mind. It was just another thing to do. It wasn't any more personal than that. It wasn't any more inner than that. It was just kind of it's hard to explain. I, I, I'm not really sure why it never caught fire, or why it, it just it just wasn't there. So I just I gave up. I just stopped. I said, you know, I guess I'm not meant to be a yogi. That's finally I, I've I've I admitted to myself I was done, finished. I'm not going to do it anymore. Over. So I went home. Went back to my job. Or I was had a business then. Picked up my business, went to work, and was quite happy just kind of being out of it, out of the whole scene. And then a few months later, I said, I'm going to go do one 10-day retreat. I always did a retreat in the, in the winter because you can't build much in the winter. So I went to do a retreat. Wow. Three days into that retreat, my mind caught fire, and I said, and this was not, I didn't think this out. This wasn't like thinking through. It was like something in my mind said, get to practice. You need to practice. It was, it was, like, it was like that. And I just said, I'm going to Burma. Just, I'm going to Burma. I'm going to, I am going to practice until I don't want to practice anymore. Well, for somebody who didn't know how to practice, that was, you know, I said, and some, some honest, it's just like, poof, something took off in my mind and said, well, I'll tell you what it was. Actually, there was an image came to me. I was laying in the, in the bed taking a nap one afternoon and kind of semi, more or less mindful, semi-mindful, and this image came to my mind. It was of a, of a skull in a shroud with these really deep-set eyes. It was a female. Uh, all I could see was a skull. And all she said was, the moment of death is the most important moment of your life. That's all she said. And that's what drove me to Burma, to practice. When I went to Burma, I was a totally different yogi, totally different person in practice. My mind was on fire. There was nothing. 
there was a kind of determination arose in my mind, in my heart, that said, there is nothing going to stop me from practice. I don't care what. Nothing. I'll die. I have to. <laughs> and I would, too. I was, I was really fierce at that time. I went alone. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't, I mean, a few people knew I was going. When I got there, I didn't make friends with anybody. I didn't look around. I didn't do any touring. I didn't do anything. I went to a and said, I'm here to practice. Now remember, I had a horrible relationship with him for three months. And he was really happy to see me, but he said, okay, here you go, do it. So I practiced for about a year and a half there. And uh, during that time, uh, Joseph and Sharon were also practicing with Upandita, and they came to Burma. Now this is the kind of practice with, with Upandita. You know, you start out at four hours of sleep a night. Well, after a few months, I didn't need four hours, so I was sleeping less than four hours, so I made a vow to myself. Wake up, get up. You don't lay around. You don't do any monkey sleep. You don't, you don't wait for the bell. Wake up, get up. So I just put myself on I said, if they expect you to sleep four hours, I don't need four hours. <laughs> yeah. It was that kind. No, Upandita couldn't push me any harder than I was pushing myself. So wake up, get up. One time, after Sharon and Joseph had been practicing there for a couple of months, they were going back, coming back to the States, and I was staying on. And uh, we, we'd known each other at the meditation center for a few years, ten years. And uh, so they wanted to take me out to eat downtown Rangoon. Well, I was a monk. You don't take monks out to eat. <laughs> but they, just, they wanted to take me out. So uh, I said, okay, let's go see this shrine. There's a shrine, there's one shrine in Rangoon where there is a, a bunch of statues of female arahants, fully enlightened females. So I thought, oh, that would be good for Sharon to see. So they rented a car, we went down there, and, and we looked at the, you know, the shrine, did the, you know, the kind of the thing, and uh, went back to the monastery, and I went to see Upandiri. He said, oh, yeah, you went out with Joseph and Sharon? Yeah, I did. Uh, now, at this point, I was sleeping about an hour, an hour and a half a night. That was all I needed. And so uh, he said, uh, oh, you want to, what'd you do? So I said, well, we went down to the so-and-so shrine, and I took a picture of, of uh, Sharon standing beside the statue of the female Arhats. He said, oh, that's nice, yeah. He says, how long were you gone? I said, oh, about an hour and a half. He said, you owe me an additional three hours of practice. The hour and a half you missed, and an hour and a half to make up for it. That was it. You owe me an additional three hours. No messing around. That's it. I said, no problem. I'll be happy. I'll fulfill it in two days. That was the kind of practice. Burning up. There's a, there's a pervasive misbelief in practice, which I want to address, that... You know, we've never said it. I don't think there's any teacher that has ever said this. And yet, it's a misunderstanding that almost all yogis have. That thoughts are the enemy. 
Did you ever hear me say that? Or any other teacher? Thoughts are the enemy? No, I don't think so. And yet, are you bothered by your thoughts? Do your thoughts torture you? And do you consider them an enemy? Often we do, because they're what's driving us nuts. And so we think, that's the problem. My thoughts are the problem. They're not the problem. Hear those cows? Hear those cows? Is that a problem that you hear, that your ears hear? You see this gonger thing here? Is it a problem that you see this? You're sitting on the cushion. Is it a problem that you feel what that cushion feels like? It's not a problem. Now you have a thought. I'm a schmuck. Oh, poor me. Is that a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) Why is that a problem? Because we get identified with it. You don't get identified with this. You don't get identified with the sound of the cow. You don't get identified with the cushion. But you get identified with your thoughts. Right? That makes it a problem. The thoughts aren't the problem. The identification with them is. Right? Now, unfortunately, um, in, in Zen practice, there's one teacher, a Korean Zen teacher called Sonsini. He says, his, his instruction around thoughts is, cut thinking mind. Well, that sounds like get rid of your thoughts. And Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda to stop the internal dialogue. Well, that sounds like getting rid of thoughts. I want you to start to notice this place in practice where thoughts are happening and they're not a problem. Because there, there are all kinds of thoughts go by in the course of a day, not a problem. But some thoughts come by and they're a big problem. The ones that are judgmental, the ones that are critical, the ones that are aversive, they become a problem. Because then we try to get rid of them. But you know, Joseph says, if the thought, the sky is blue, comes through your mind, do you try to get rid of that? We don't try to get rid of that. It's just, the sky is blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cows moo. Okay. Cows moo. Mm-hmm. Bells gong. Bells ring. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, poor me. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a schmuck. Hmm. Okay. It's just a thought. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, it is kind of funny. It's like some thoughts come by and they totally change the climate of our mind. Please, start to notice thoughts both the ones that are total mean, uh, you know, total nonsense thoughts or, or, or things that you don't even react to, and see that your, your mind is filled with thoughts that are okay. They, they, they don't cause any problem. 
get familiar with be, thoughts being in the mind, not a problem. So that when the thought, oh poor me, I'm a schmuck, I can't do this, or I'm no good, whatever it is comes by, you see that too is huh, just another thought. In the discourse on mindfulness, the Buddha says, for the purification of your mind, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain, of sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the foundations of mindfulness. The body, the mind, thoughts, and feelings. The promise is, or the statement is, if you pay attention to them, thoughts, feelings, the body, and the mind, you'll overcome sadness, grief, pain, suffering, sorrow, judgment, fear, desire, ambition, and realize peace. Mindfulness is the key. Mindfulness is just, just the word is so easy to use and so elusive to live. But it's the only thing we're going to talk about is being mindful, being aware. Stepping back from entanglement with your experience to awareness of your experience. You know, in, when we're not mindfully aware, we're, we're leaning forward and our minds are entangled in what we see, what we think, what we eat, each other. We're just kind of all snarled up like a, ball, uh, like a skein of yarn. Awareness is that whoop, settling back, being aware of what we eat, what we see, each other. Such a simple movement of the mind from entanglement to freedom. Entanglement to spaciousness. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche says of the mind, what we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another, 
thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, triggered off by such circumstances as an unexpected meeting with an adversary or a friend. And unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, awareness, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint. Once you recognize mindfulness, once you recognize awareness, these thoughts, these thoughts, thoughts which seem to appear and disappear all the time can no longer fool you. Just as clouds form, last for a while, and then dissolve back into the empty sky, so too deluded thoughts arise, remain for a while, and then vanish in the emptiness of the aware mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. Thoughts form, disturb the appearance of the mind, then they dissolve. In reality, nothing has happened. Let's sit for a minute, let the words settle down. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sought, sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding helps keep the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified. Sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. That's Afterthought by Trungpa. So thank you again for listening to the Dharma. Sadhu.